Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we examine the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 10, Role-Playing Games from 2005 till Today. In 2005, White Wolf Publishing dropped a new entry in their long-running line of products, Mage the Awakening. Based in their new Chronicles of Darkness setting, Mage was designed by Bill Bridges and Conrad Hubbard. Now, Mage the Awakening has similar properties to a previous White Wolf entry, Mage the Ascension, but Bridges and Hubbard made a ton of changes to the new game, updating it into the new world setting White Wolf was promoting. One major difference between Mage and other games in this line, like Vampire or Werewolf, is that the history of mages and magic is much less ambiguous than in those other games. In other words, the storyteller has more published history to work with for players than in other lines, and can spend more time working on the actual story to be told without having to figure out magic history for use by mages in the game. In this history, magic comes from dragons, though that's an oversimplification of the overall story. Over time, humans became able to use magic. That use led to hubris, which led to other conflicts, including those with vampires and other awakened beings. However, for the purposes of this game, all of the enemies are humans. In fact, it is strongly suggested that storytellers not bring in vampires or other awakened beings to the game. There are a number of antagonists for use in this game, including witch hunters, to challenge the players over time. White Wolf has published 30 different supplements for the Mage system since its initial release, with the most recent dropping in March of 2020. As with all entries in the White Wolf catalog, Mage the Awakening has been very popular with both gamers and reviewers, and continues to sell quite well. Now, two weeks ago, we examined the concept known as the old-school renaissance, where game publishers began producing games with an old-school feel. The OSR led to the creation of what were called D&D retro clones, one of which came out in 2006. Osric, short for Old School Reference and Index Compilation, designed by Stuart Marshall and Matt Finch and released by Knights and Knaves, is a recreation of the first edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Osric utilizes the open game license and system reference document of D&D 3rd Edition, which had been released by Wizards of the Coast in 2000. Osric was literally designed to bring the old-school flair of 1st Edition AD&D with some of the more modern techniques of gaming that had been developed over the years. One unique aspect of Osric was that Knights and Knaves made Osric available for free from the game's site. It's a PDF, which made it easy not only to print, but also to view on digital sources. Later on, Blackblade Publishing and Usherwood Publishing joined forces to publish a deluxe, hardbound print version with brand new art. Osric version 2.2 was released in 2013 with the same release guidelines as before. Osric has been fairly successful, and players report it to be a fun, old-school experience. Staying in that old-school revival, in 2007, Goblinoid Games released the game Labyrinth Lord. Written and edited by Daniel Proctor, it was based on the 1981 D&D Basic set, originally edited by Tom Moldvay, and the Expert set, 
edited by David Zeb Cook. It was intentionally written to emulate the vibe of classic D&D and utilize the open game license from Wizards of the Coast. The big selling point for Labyrinth Lord was that any adventure that could be played under the classic D&D rules could be played with Labyrinth Lord with very few adjustments, if any, needing to be made. However, in a nod to the new rules of D&D, characters could level up to level 20, which they couldn't under the original expert rules. Also, clerics could cast spells at first level, which also wasn't allowed under those original rules. Labyrinth Lord was very well received, with critics loving its old-school feel. It has also been translated into German and Italian. Kenzer and Company released the widely popular Aces and Eights Shattered Frontier in 2007, written by Jolly Blackburn, there's this week's Jolly mention, Brian Jelke, Steve Johansson, Dave Kenzer, Jennifer Kenzer, and Mark Plemons, Shattered Frontier expands on the basic rules the group had released for the game two years prior. The setting of Aces and Eights is very similar to Deadlands in that it's an alternate history setting, with the U.S. and CSA still embroiled in a civil war. However, different from Deadlands, it's a straight-up western, rather than have the revenant portions that the other game includes. It also allows for a different style of play, as the U.K. and France got involved with the CSA, Texas never joined the Union, and therefore never joined the CSA, and Mexico still owns much of the modern-day southwestern U.S. Shattered Frontier has sold very well since its release, and was well-reviewed by various magazines across platforms. It is still available for purchase and play today. In 2009, Paizo Publishing released the Pathfinder role-playing game. Designed by Jason Bullman, it was originally intended to be backward compatible with D&D 3.5 edition, as it was an extension and modification of the system reference document and open game license published by Wizards of the Coast. Now, you might be asking, how could Paizo modify an OGL from Wizards of the Coast? The actual answer is pretty long and drawn out, but the simplified version goes like this. Paizo-based Pathfinder on 3rd edition, 3.5 edition D&D. In 2008, Wizards released 4th edition D&D, which came with a new, more restrictive OGL. Since Wizards was only going to support 4th edition moving forward, for all intents and purposes, it could be considered that they'd left the OGL for 3rd edition open for interpretation. And since Paizo didn't make significant changes to the game or to the OGL, Wizards chose to let things be. So, Pathfinder filled that niche that Wizards had given up on when they radically altered the game with 4th edition. In fact, for quite some time, Pathfinder was jokingly referred to as D&D 3.75. However, Bullman believed that the basic D&D classes, at least for 3.5 edition, were just meh. So he set out to make adjustments to the classes to encourage players to stick with a single class all the way to level 20, which hadn't been happening much during the time of D&D 3.5. Other changes made were made to add balance. One example was that classes that were less combat-oriented got more hit points. Changes were also made to some spells, the skill system, and a number of combat maneuvers. Needless to say, Pathfinder went over huge. How huge? How about overtaking the king of the role-playing mountain for a couple of years? Pathfinder did that very thing. 
outselling D&D 4th Edition, and therefore being the number one selling role-playing game in the world, from the spring of 2011 through the summer of 2014. It has been argued, in fact, that this success, among several other things, was why Wizards fast-tracked 5th Edition for a late 2014 release. In fact, Pathfinder's fall from the number one spot coincides with the release of D&D 5th Edition. But Pathfinder is still consistently the number two selling role-playing game. So not a bad consolation prize. Pathfinder has been very well supported from its release with numerous supplements, the Pathfinder Society, and other materials published as part of the open game license. Pathfinder has picked up several Emmy Awards from Gen Con over the years, and its popularity led to a second edition, which was released on August 1st, 2019. We've got more timeline to cover, and we'll do that right after we hear from this week's podcast sponsor. Getting back into the timeline, 2009 saw the release of several games licensed from popular television shows and books as Doctor Who, Supernatural, and A Song of Ice and Fire got role-playing game releases. While the Doctor Who game received kudos for its reliance on non-violent solutions to issues, none of the games were particularly well-reviewed by game reviewers. It should be noted, though, that fans of the individual projects purchased the games en masse. While this didn't necessarily lead to a long shelf life, it does mean that if you're looking for one of these games to play today, you should be able to find one in pretty decent shape from a used game dealer. 2010, 11, and 12 saw multiple game releases, but none of them were world-shattering. In fact, there were a number of games based on popular franchises, such as Smallville and the Dresden Files, a ton of fantasy-based RPGs trying to find their niche in the world, and a number of superhero-based games, with another version of DC Heroes being released. There was even a steampunk game released in 2011 based on the songs by the steampunk band Abney Park, called Abney Park's Airship Pirates. The game wasn't long-lasting, but it did help push the steampunk game movement just a little further along. So with that, I'm going to fast forward to 2013 and the game 13th Age. Designed by Rob Heinsu and Jonathan Tweet and published by Pelgrane Press, 13th Age was designed with concept familiar to D&D players, which makes sense since Heinsu was the lead designer for 4th edition and Tweet was the lead for 3rd edition. However, 13th Age was also set up to have a vague setting at its start. Characters were to have free-form backgrounds, with each character having one unique thing that had no direct mechanic. It also wasn't intended to use miniatures or a grid. All distances are abstract, focused on positioning rather than on actual distances. That being said, some aspects of 4th edition D&D, cleansed of their D&D specifics, made their way into the game as well. 13th Age is a D20 system and therefore released under the open game license, which allows for others to utilize the system for their own creations. 13th Age was mostly positively received and is still available for purchase and play. 2014 brought another entry into the Star Wars role-playing game world, Age of Rebellion, plus a game based on the fan-favorite but short-lived television series Firefly. 
I'm going to cover both of these games in a longer form in another episode. So for now, we're just mentioning them as a part of the timeline. Something else that needs to be mentioned here is that for several years during this time, numerous games were released to the gaming public through Kickstarter campaigns. The benefits of utilizing Kickstarter allowed for game creators to learn whether or not there'd be enough interest in their game to publish and release it without having to secure funding from the traditional sources. 13th Age had a number of supplements released through Kickstarter, and other games, such as 2015's Shadow of the Demon Lord, were also released thanks to Kickstarter campaigns. Kickstarter also allowed Shane Lacey Hensley to release a 20th anniversary edition of Deadlands and allowed other creators, such as Monty Cook, to get back into the creation game in a lower-risk manner. In fact, if you go to Kickstarter today, you'll find dozens of different games up for sponsorship. Some of those games will be successfully funded and may become the games we talk about on this podcast tomorrow, while others might not be. My personal belief is that anything that gives creators an opportunity to get their works published can be a positive thing, and I've personally been a part of a dozen or so different campaigns over the past 15 years or so. They're not necessarily for everyone, but I would encourage all gaming fans to check it out. In 2016, Cubicle 7 published Adventures in Middle-Earth, designed by Dominic McDowell, John Hodgson, Francesco Neptello, and Marco Maggi, it was set in the time between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, giving players the opportunity to play in Tolkien's Middle-Earth without being beholden to the action in either of those previous series. It's compatible with 5th edition D&D rules through the open game license. It was a well-received game, winning the 2017 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game, as well as having a dozen supplements published for it. Reviewers liked it as well. However, it is now out of print, as Cubicle 7 lost the license in 2020. Paizo Publishing stuck its toes back into the role-playing water in 2017, releasing the Starfinder game. It's based on the same system utilized by Pathfinder, though obviously modified for a more futuristic style. The adaptations were developed by the staff at Paizo, with no individual credits given. Starfinder was inspired by Star Wars, Alien, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Warhammer 40k, among others, and was the successor to Distant Worlds, which was a science fiction supplement for Pathfinder that had been released in 2012. As both Pathfinder and Starfinder share a common world, just in different time periods, Things such as magic exist in both worlds. Also, the game mechanics allow for sharing of characters between the two games with only basic modifications needed. Starfinder has been widely praised for its streamlined rules and flexible setting. It also got kudos for its starship combat rules. Starfinder won the 2018 Origins Award for fan-favorite role-playing game. Moving through the rest of the 20-teens and into today, we've seen numerous new games released, both brand new titles and updates of old favorites. Games like Cyberpunk and Vampire have gotten updates for more modern audiences and new fans, and other games have been created to take advantage of the built-in audience of video gamers who like the role-playing style of games like Assassin's Creed and The Last of Us. Hmm, an Assassin's Creed role-playing game. 
hey, let's email Ubisoft and get that campaign rolling, because I can assure you, I'd buy that one. Now, as I mentioned in early episodes of this podcast, specifically during the episode on Dungeons & Dragons, the role-playing industry has taken a lot of heat over the years. One big example of this is how certain organizations choose to treat game players. For years, the Israeli Defense Forces supposedly would ask their teenage recruits if they played D&D. If they answered that they did, they were given a lower security clearance than other recruits. The supposed reason for this was because they were, in part, quote, detached from reality, end quote. Now, in the interest of fairness, I cannot confirm that this practice definitely took place, as I got it from an article who claimed it from an anonymous source. But I do know there are corporations in the United States that treat admitted gamers as lesser than those who do not game. As mentioned also in the Dungeons & Dragons episode, Patricia Pulling formed a one-person advocacy group called Bothered About Dungeons & Dragons, or BAD, and began publishing her beliefs that D&D encourages devil worship and suicide. To combat that, gamers organized the Committee for the Advancement of Role-Playing Games in 1988. This group writes letters to editors, gives interviews, makes posts online, and does everything they can to try to make sure the reporting of role-playing games is balanced. Over time, organizations such as the United States Centers for Disease Control and Canada's Health and Welfare have concluded that there is no casual link between role-playing games and suicide. In fact, several writers have poured over the data and argued that the suicide rate is actually lower among gamers than among non-gamers. The most recent controversy in the gaming industry mirrors what's going on in the world at large. Many role-playing games have been chastised for years for their misogynistic portrayals of women, especially in their artwork. What many casual gamers didn't know was that this misogyny was carrying over into the creative field as well, with women being passed over for jobs at some publishers over far less qualified men. These same issues were raised concerning people of color, as well as those in the LGBTQ community. In recent years, those with disabilities have also made their voices heard. In some cases, the role-playing industry listened and responded, as many games now try to be as inclusive as possible, while others, D&D among them, have attempted to remove many of their more controversial pieces from their history. Specific to D&D, the drow race, which are dark elves, had historically been portrayed as evil. While numerous gamers over the years had moved on their own to play them as more neutral or even as good, many in the game world agreed that this assumption of evil based solely on the color of skin wasn't right. Wizards of the Coast agreed, and the drow, along with some monster types, have had the always evil removed from them. Several game systems have added in items for characters with disabilities, which allow players with disabilities to play characters that better represent them in a game world without the limitations they'd had to deal with previously. But not everything has been wine and roses. There are some gamers who believe that there's no reason to make changes to their beloved games. One comment I saw online said that, quote, it's a fantasy world, so you can play something that doesn't have a disability, end quote and reports continue to come out about the inequalities of some companies in the game industry, as women, individuals of color, 
those with disabilities and members of the LGBTQ plus community still find themselves discriminated against. Unfortunately, this means that the hobby that many of us use to get away from the real world has become, in many cases, a mirror of that real world. So how do we deal with this? <laughs> That's the $64,000 question. I wish I had an easy answer. I wish I could just wave my hand, tell everybody to treat everybody equally and make it happen. But look, I know I can't do that. Plus, I tend to not put my opinion out there very much on this podcast. And I do that because I want everyone to feel welcome, regardless of their beliefs. Now, on the YouTube channel, I admit I've offered my opinions up a few times. But in fairness, that's the YouTube channel, and that's content you can only get there. So I feel a lot more open to doing it. But with that said, I do have an opinion about how we can work to make our hobby more inclusive for everybody. It's pretty complicated, so I really need you to pay attention. Are you ready? Here it is. Don't be a dick. Okay, so maybe it's not a long-winded dissertation. I mean, Will Wheaton's the first person I've heard say it, and I still think it's the easiest way to make our game and our world a better place. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Understand that not everyone believes in the same things that you do. And don't be a dick. If you don't agree with someone, agree to disagree. You don't have to smack talk them, discriminate against them, or make them feel like shit. Just leave them be. Anyway, that's just one guy's opinion. And that's going to bring today's tour to a close. Next week, we're going to do a deep dive into the history of Wizards of the Coast. As always, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to the podcast every week. You're the reason I get to talk about the hobby I love so much without boring my poor wife and daughter to death. And I can assure you, they thank you for that too. You can follow us on Facebook on the Role Playing History Podcast page. Hit us up on Twitter at Role Playing History Podcast or use the hashtag Role Playing History Podcast. As I mentioned a minute ago, the YouTube channel is Role Playing History Podcast. I do have a couple of YouTube exclusives on there, but I have to admit I've been busy with life stuff recently, so I haven't done as much as I want to. Hit the subscribe button. Click on the bell and we'll alert you when new stuff posts. As always, you can drop us an email at roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. So, next week we talk about Wizards of the Coast and what they've brought to the role-playing world. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and you're role-playing history.